Chapter 16 of The Wild Northland by William Francis Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 A long distance, destitute of fort or post, had now to be passed. For fully three hundred miles above Vermilion, no sign of life but the wild man and his prey, the former scant enough, are to be found along the shores of the Peace River. The old fort known as Dunvegan lies twelve long winter days travel to the southwest, and to reach it, even in that time, requires sustained and arduous exertion. For two hundred miles above Vermilion, the course of the Peace River is northwest. It winds in long, serpentine curves between banks which gradually become more lofty as the traveler ascends the stream. To cut the long curve to the south by an overland portage now became our work and for three days we followed a trail through mingled prairie and forest land, all lying deep in snow. Four trains of dogs now formed our line. An Ojibwe named White Bear led the advance, and the trains took in turn the work of breaking the road after him. Maldaracat had at last proved more than a match for me, and walking had become impossible but the trains returning to Dunvegan were lightly loaded, and as the officer at Vermilion had arranged that the various dogs should take their turn in hauling my carryall, I had a fresh train each day, and thus Sir Fola and his company obtained a two days' respite from their toil. The old dog was as game as when I had first started, but the temporary change of masters necessitated by our new arrangements seemed to puzzle him not a little and many a time his head would turn round to steal a furtive look at the new driver, who, filled with strange oaths, now ran behind his carriole. Our trail led towards the foot of the Buffalo Hills. I was now in the country of the Beaver Indians, a branch of the great Chippewayan race, a tribe once numerous on the river, which bears its present name of peace from the stubborn resistance offered by them to the all-conquering Crees a resistance which induced that warlike tribe to make peace on the banks of the river and to leave at rest the beaver hunters of the Unchaga. Since that time, though far removed from the white settler, lying remote from the faintest echo of civilization, this tribe of beaver Indians has steadily decreased, and today in the whole length of 900 miles from beyond the mountains to the Lake Athabasca, Scarce two hundred families lie scattered over the high prairies and undulating forest belts of the Peace River. Now they live in peace with all men, but once it was a different matter. The Crees were not their only enemies. Their Chippeway and cousins warred upon them, and once upon a time a fierce commotion raged amongst their own tribe. One day a young chief shot his arrow through a dog belonging to another brave. The brave revenged the death of his dog, and instantly a hundred bows were drawn. Ere night had fallen, some eighty warriors lay dead around the camp. The pine woods rang with the lamentations of the women. The tribe had lost its bravest men. There was a temporary truce. The friends of the chief, whose arrow had killed the dog, yet numbered some sixty people. It was agreed that they should separate from the tribe and seek their fortune in the vast wilderness lying to the south. In the night they commenced their march. Sullenly their brethren saw them depart, never to return. They went their way by the shores of the Lesser Slave Lake, toward the Great Plains, 
which were said to lie far southward by the banks of the swift-rolling Saskatchewan. The tribe of beavers never saw again this exiled band, but a hundred years later, a beaver Indian, who followed the fortunes of a white fur hunter, found himself in one of the forts of the Saskatchewan. Strange Indians were camped around the Palisades. They were portions of the great Blackfeet tribe, whose hunting grounds lay south of the Saskatchewan. Among them were a few braves who, when they conversed together, spoke a language different from the other Blackfeet. In this language, the beaver Indian recognized his own tongue. The fortunes of the exiled branch were then traced. They had reached the Great Plains, the Blackfeet had protected them, and they had joined the tribes as allies in war against Crees or Assiniboines. Today, the Circes still speak the guttural language of the Chippewayan. Notorious among the wild horse raiders of the prairies, they outdo even the Blackfeet in audacious plundering. And although the parent stock on the Peace River are quiet and harmless, the offshoot race has long been a terror over the prairies of the South. No men in this land of hunters hunt better than the beavers. It is not uncommon for a single Indian to render from his winter trapping 200 marten skins, and not less than 20,000 beavers are annually killed by the tribe on the waters of the Peace River. On the morning of the third day after leaving Vermilion, we fell in with a band of beavers. Five wigwams stood pitched upon a pretty rising knoll, backed by pine woods, which skirted the banks of the stream, upon the channel of which the lodges of the animal beaver rose cone-like above the snow. When we reached the camp, at Talu the chief came forth. A stranger was a rare sight, and at Talu was bound to make a speech. Three of his warriors, half a dozen children, and a few women filled up the background, Leaning upon a long, single-barreled gun, Atalu began. The mayor and corporation of that thriving borough of Porkingham could not have been more solicitous to interrupt a royal progress to the north than was this beaver Indian anxious to address the traveler. But there was this difference between them. Whereas Mayor Tompkins had chiefly in view the excellent opportunity of hearing his own voice, utterly unmindful of what a horrid bore he was making himself to his sovereign, Atalu had in view more practical results. His frequent iteration of the word tea in his guttural language told at once the story of his wants. This winter has been a severe one. Death has struck heavily into the tribe. In these three wigwams, six women had died. It was true each brave still had three or four wives left, but moose were plenty and a man with six helpmates could be rich in dry meat and moose leather. Tea was the pressing want. Without tea, the meat of the moose was insipid. Without tea and tobacco, the loss of even the fifth or sixth rib became a serious affair. I endeavored to find out the cause of this mortality among the poor hunters, and it was not far to seek. Constitutions enfeebled by close intermarriage and by the hardships attending upon wild life in these northern regions were fast wearing out. At the present rate of mortality, the tribe of the beavers will soon be extinct, and with them will have disappeared the best and the simplest of the nomad tribes of the north. Atalu was made happy with tea and tobacco, and we went on our way. 
Another Doughty chief named Tuapus probably also regarded tea as the elixir of life and the true source of happiness, but as my servitor still continued to regard my stock of the luxury as a very excellent medium for the accumulation of stray marten skins for his own benefit, it was perhaps as well that I should only know Tuapus through the channel of hearsay. On the morning of the 25th of March, we emerged from the tortuous little Buffalo River upon the majestic channel of the Peace. Its banks were now deeply furrowed beneath the prairie level. Its broad surface rolled away to the southwest, 500 yards from shore to shore. The afternoon came forth bright and warm, and from a high ridge on the left shore a far-stretching view lay rolled before us. The Eagle Hills, the glistening river, the wide expanse of dark forest and white prairie, and above a sky which had caught the hue and touch of spring, while winter still stood entrenched on plain and river. Late that evening we reached the hut of a Cree Indian. A snowstorm closed the twilight, and all sought shelter in the house. It was eight feet by twelve in superficial size, yet nineteen persons lay down to rest in it. A Cree and his wife and Assiniboine and his wife, eight or ten children, and any number of swampy, Ojibwe, and half-breeds. Whenever the creaky door opened, a dozen dogs found ingress and dodged under and over the men, women, and children in hopeless confusion. The Assiniboine squaw seemed to devote all her energies to the expulsion of the intruders. The infants rolled over the puppy dogs, the puppy dogs scrambled over the infants, and outside in the snow and on the low roof, Sir Fola and his friends did battle with a host of Indian dogs. So the night passed away. Next morning there was no track. We waded deep in the snow and made but slow progress. Things had reached a climax with my crew. They had apparently made up their minds to make a long, slow journey. They wanted to camp at any Indian lodge they saw, to start late and camp early, to eat, smoke, and talk, to do everything, in fact, but travel. I was still nearly 150 miles from Dunvegan, and as much more from that mountain range whose defiles I hoped to reach ere the ice road on which I traveled had turned into a rushing stream. Already the sun shone strong in the early afternoon, and the surface snow grew moist under his warm rays, and here were my men ready to seek any excuse for loitering on the way. About noon one day, we reached a camp of Crees on the south shore of the river. Moose meat was getting scarce, so I asked my yellow rascal to procure some titbits from the camp in exchange for tea. The whole party at once vanished into the tents while I remained with the dogs upon the river. Presently, my friend reappeared. He could only get a rib piece or a tough leg. And don't take them, I said. I saw the rascal was at his old work, so taking some tea and tobacco, I went up myself to the tents. Meantime, the men, women, and children had all come out to the shore. I held up the tea and pointed to the moose meat. In an instant, the scene changed. Briskets, tongues, and moose noses were brought out, and I could have loaded my dogs with titbits had I wished. Still, I pretended to find another motive for my henchman's conduct. See, I said to him, I make a better trader with Indians than you do. They would only give you the tough bits. I can get noses enough to load my dogs with. 
But the camp possessed an attraction still more enticing. Early that morning I had observed the Indians and half-breeds arraying themselves in their gayest trappings. The half-breed usually, in dressing himself, devotes the largest share of attention to the decoration of his legs. Beads, buckles, and embroidered ribbons flutter from his leggings, and his garters are resplendent with colored worsted or porcupine quill work. These items of finery had all been donned this morning in camp. The long hair had been carefully smeared with the bear's fat, and then I had not long to wait for an explanation of all this adornment. In one of the three Cree tents, there dwelt two good-looking squaws. We entered this tent, the mats were unrolled, the fire replenished, and the squaws set to work to cook a moose nose and tongue for my dinner. Dinner over, the difficulty began. The quarters were excellent in the estimation of my men. It would be the wildest insanity to think of quitting such a paradise of love and food under at least 24 hours' delay. So they suddenly announced their intention of biting a wee. I endeavored to expostulate. I spoke of the lateness of the season, the distance I had yet to travel, the necessity of bringing to Dunvegan the train of dogs destined for that post at the earliest period. All was of no avail. Their snowshoes were broken, and they must wait. Very good. Put my four dogs into harness, and I will go on alone. So the dogs were put in harness, and taking with me my most lootable effects, I set out alone into the wilderness. It still wanted some four hours of sunset when I left the Indian lodges on the south shore and held my way along the far-reaching river. My poor old dog, after a few glances back to see why he should be alone, settled himself to work, and despite the lameness, the result of long travel, he led the advance so gamely that when night fell, some dozen miles lay between us and the Cree lodges. At the foot of a high ridge, whose summit still caught the glow from the low-set sun, while the river valley grew dark in the twilight, I turned the dogs toward the south shore and looked about for a camping place. The lower bank sloped down to the ice abruptly, but dogs going to camp will drag a load up, over, or through anything, and the prospect of rest above is even a greater incentive to exertion than the fluent imprecations of the half-breed below. So, by dint of hauling, we reached the top, and then I made my camp in a pine clump on the brink. When the dogs had been unharnessed and the snow dug away, the pine brush laid upon the ground, and the wood cut, when the fire was made, the kettle filled with snow and boiled, the dogs fed with a good hearty meal of dry moose meat, and my own hunger satisfied, then it was time to think while the fire lit up the pine stems and the last glint of daylight gleamed in the western sky. A jagged pine top laid its black cone against what had been the sunset. An owl from the opposite shore sounded at intervals his lonely call. Now and again a passing breeze bent the fir trees until they whispered forth that mournful song which seems to echo from the abyss of the past. The fir tree is the oldest of the trees of the earth, and its look and its voice tell the story of its age. If it were possible to have left my worthless half-breeds altogether and to traverse the solitudes alone, how gladly I would have done so. I felt at last at home. The great silent river, the lofty ridge darkening against the twilight, yon star burning like a beacon above the precipice, all these were friends, and midst them one could rest in peace.
And now, as I run back in thought along that winter journey and see again the many campfires glimmering through the waste of wilderness, there comes not to my memory a calmer scene than that which closed around my lonely fire by the distant Anchaga. I was there almost in the center of the vast wilderness of North America, around stretched in silence that mystery we term nature, that thing which we see in pictures, in landscapes, in memory, which we hear in the voices of wind-swept forests and the long sob of seas against ocean rocks. This mother, ever-present, ever-mysterious, sometimes terrible, often tender, always beautiful, stood there with naught to come between us save loneliness and twilight. I awoke with the dawn. Soft snow was falling on river and ridge, and the opposite shore lay hid in mist and gloom. A breakfast, which consists of pemmican, tea, and biscuit, takes but a short time to prepare or to discuss, and by sunrise I was on the river. Until midday I held on, but before that time the sun glowed brightly on the dazzling surface of the snow, and the dogs panted as they hauled their loads, biting frequent mouthfuls of the soft snow through which they toiled. About noon I camped on the south shore. I had still two meals from myself, but none remained for the dogs. The men had, however, assured me that they would not fail to make an early start, and I determined to await their coming in this camp. The day passed, and night closed again, but no figure darkened the long stretch of river, and my poor dogs went supperless to sleep. Sir Fola, it is true, had some scraps of sweet pemmican, but they were mere drops in the ocean of his appetite. The hauling dog of the north is a queer animal about food. When it is there, he likes to have it, but when it isn't there, like his Indian master, he can do without it. About supper hour, he looks wistfully at his master, and seeing no sign of pemmican chopping or dry meat slicing, he rolls himself up into a ball and goes quietly to sleep in his snow bed. Again the night came softly down, the gray owl hooted his lonely cry, the breeze stirred the forest tops, and the pine tree murmured softly and low, singing its song of the past to the melody of its myriad years. At such times the mind of the wanderer sings its own song, too. It is the song of home, and as memory rings the cadence, time and distance disappear, and the old land brightens forth amidst the embers of forest fire. These islands, which we call home, are far away. Afar off, we idealize them. In the forest depths, we dream bright visions of their firesides of welcome. In the snow-sheeted lake, and the icy stretch of river, and the motionless muskeg, how sweetly sound the notes of brook and bird! How brightly rise the glimpses of summer eves, when the white mists float over the scented meadows, and the corncrake sounds from his lair in the meadow sweet. It is there, away in the east, far off, where the moon is rising above the forked pines, or the upcoming stars edge the ice piles on the dim eastern shores of yon sheeted lake. Far away, a speck amidst the waves of distance, bright, happy, and peaceful, holding out its welcome and following with its anxious thoughts the wanderer who sails away over the ocean and roams the expanses of the earth. Well, some fine day we come back again. The great steamship touches the long idealized shore. 
gods, how the scene changes. We feel bursting with joy to see it all again and say, Oh, how glad I am to see you all. We say it with our eyes to the young lady behind the refreshment buffet at the railroad station. Alas, she mistakes our exuberance for impertinence and endeavors to annihilate us with a glance enough to freeze even her high-spirited sherry. We pass the bobby on his beat with a smile of recognition, but that ferocious functionary, not a whit softened, regards us as a party likely to afford him transient employment in the matter of running in. The railway porter alone seems to enter into our feelings of joy, but alas, it is only with a view to that donation with which we are sure to present him. We have enlisted his sympathies as Her Majesty enlists her recruits by the aid of a shilling. Ere an hour has passed, the vision seen so frequently through the mist of weary miles has vanished, and we have taken our place in the vast humming crowd of England's hive to wish ourselves back into the dreamy solitudes again. I had been asleep some hours, and midnight had come, when the sound of voices roused me, and my recreant band approached the dying campfire. They had at length torn themselves away from the abode of bliss and moose meat, but either the memory of its vanished pleasures or a stray feeling of shame kept them still sullen and morose. They, however, announced their readiness to go on at once, as the crust upon the snow was now hard. I rose from my robe, gave the dogs a late supper, and once more we set out. Daylight found us still upon the track. The men seemed disposed to make amends for former dilatoriness. The ice crust was hard, and the dogs went well. When the sun had become warm enough to soften the surface, we camped, had supper, and lay down to sleep for the day. With sunset came the hour of starting, and thus turning night into day, breakfasting at sunset, dining at midnight, supping at sunrise, traveling all night and sleeping all day, we held our way up the Unchaga. Three nights of travel passed, and the morning of the 1st of April broke upon the silent river. We had traveled well. Full 100 miles of these lonely, lofty shores had vanished behind us in the gray, dusky light of twilight, night, and early morning. As the dawn broke in the east and gradually grew into a broader band of light, the huge ramparts of the lofty shores wore strange, unearthly aspects. 600 feet above the ice, wind and sun had already swept the snow, and the bare hilltops rose to view free at last from winter's covering. Lower down, full many a rugged ridge and steep, scarped precipice held its clinging growth of pine and poplar, or showed gigantic slides upon whose gravelly surface the loosened stones rolled with sullen echo into the river chasm beneath. Between these huge walls lay the river, broadly curving from the west, motionless and soundless, as we swept with rapid stride over its sleeping waters. Sometimes in the early morning, upon these steep ridges, the moose would emerge from his covert and look down on the passing dog trains, his huge, ungainly head outstretched to sniff the tainted gale, his great ears lying forward to catch the faint jingle of our dog bells. Nearly all else seemed to sleep in endless slumber, for alone of summer denizens, the owl, the moose, the wolf, and the raven keep winter watch over the wilderness of the Peace River. 
At daybreak on the 1st of April, we were at the mouth of the Smoking River. This stream enters the Peace River from the southwest. It has its source but a couple of days' journey north of the Athabasca River, at the spot where that river emerges from the Rocky Mountains, and it drains the beautiful region of varied prairie and forest land which lies at the base of the mountains between the Peace and Athabasca Rivers. The men made a long march this day, inspired by the offer of a gratuity if they could make the fort by nighttime, and anxious, perhaps, to atone for past shortcomings, they made up a train of five strong dogs. Setting out with this train at eight o'clock in the morning, three of them held the pace so gamely that when evening closed we were in sight of the lofty ridge which overhangs the north shore, the fort of Dunvegan. As the twilight closed over the broad river, we were steering between two huge walls of sandstone rock, which towered up 700 feet above the shore. The yellow light at the sunset still glowed in the west, lighting up the broad chasm through which the river flowed, and throwing many a weird shadow along the basaltic precipice. Right in our onward track stood a large, dusky wolf. He watched us until we approached within 200 yards of him, then, turning, he held his course up the center of the river. My five dogs caught sight of him, and in an instant they gave chase. The surface of the snow was now hard frozen, and urged by the strength of so many dogs, the carriole flew along the slippery surface. The driver was soon far behind. The wolf kept the center of the river, and the carriole bounded from snowpack to snowpack, or shot along the level ice while the dusky twilight filled the deep chasm with its spectral light. But this wild chase was not long to last. The wolf sought refuge amidst the rocky shore, and the dogs turned along the trail again. Two hours later, a few lights glimmered through the darkness beneath the black shadow of an immense hill. The unusual sound of rushing water broke strangely on the ear after such a lapse of silence but the hill streams had already broken their icy barriers, and their waters were even now hastening to the great river, still chained with the jives of winter, to aid its hidden current in the work of deliverance. Here and there, deep pools of water lay on the surface of the ice, through which the dogs waded breast deep, and the carriole floated like a boat. Thus, alternately wading and sliding, we drew near the glimmering lights. We had reached Dunvegan. If the man and the dog slept well that night, it was little wonder. With the intermission only necessary for food, we had traveled incessantly during four and twenty hours. Yet it was the same that night at Dunvegan as it had been elsewhere at various times. Outside, the dogs might rest as they pleased, but within, in the huts, Swampy and Half-Breed and Ojibwe danced and fiddled, laughed and capered until the small hours of the morning. End of chapter 16